Well, hello and welcome to Rare Nautical Reads with me, Chris Stanmore Major. This time we're going to be reading the book Desperate Voyage by John Caldwell. This was published by Little, Brown and Company of Boston in 1949. And it catalogues John's attempts to get from North America to Australia to reunite with his bride. After the war, there was so much complication. Shipping, of course, had been decimated and the organization of shipping was just all over the place. And there was no ships. There was no other way of getting between continents. And so finally, John manages to find himself a 29-foot yacht that he's able to take on the Pacific. The only problem being, he's never sailed before. So if you've ever dreamt of crossing an ocean, if it looks like a task that's just too impossible, I think there's a lot of inspiration to be taken from this book. That's why I've chosen it. I think there are a lot of lessons to be learned from it. But certainly what we see is someone that with determination and with effort and with a little bit of tenacity, you can make things happen if you need to. So here's Desperate Voyage by John Caldwell for everybody who's dreamed of crossing an ocean. Chapter 1. Preparation. My boat was in her trim and raring to be off on her long, ill-fated voyage. A voyage from Panama to Australia, 8,500 miles of variable seas, reefs and tropic islands, across the equator, through the doldrums and into the hurricane seas, single-handed. A voyage of uncertainty, but what could I do? I had been pushed into it by a sequence of compelling events over which I had no control. I had to go, or so I thought, and I had to do it on the little sailing cutter I had bought two weeks before at Balboa, Panama. In no other way could I get to my Australian bride, whom I had married a year before in Sydney. It was May, 1946. The war had just ended, ships were scarce and on chaotic schedules. I was stranded. Mary, my bride, was stranded also. She waited in Sydney, waited helplessly for the ship that never sailed. For that matter, for her, wasn't due to sail for another year. There just wasn't enough shipping. It was as simple as that. I had tried everything to get a ship back to my bride, but everything had failed. I had been half around the world since marrying her, had been full across America and finally wound up in Panama and still no ship. So I bought the small boat. When I first saw my boat, Pagan, She was nuzzling to a boy at the Balboa Yacht Club in the canal zone. In a word, she was trim, that is, she was built to sail. From forward of the stem head to abaft the stern posts, she tallied a hair short of 26 feet on the waterline and 29 feet on her decks. She ran 10 feet at her widest beam and 3 feet 10 inches at her deepest draught. She lay afloat with a yeomanly air, bow up like a snob, her 40-foot stick raking back and up. She was like a canoe, lying low to the water as she did, staring sensitively to every change on the surface. Her cabin, about eight feet long, situated between the mast and cockpit, stood 18 inches above the rail. Other than that, her decks showed nothing but her standing and running rigging. For her 29 feet, she was clean and spacious. She had an offset bowsprit which ran seven feet out from the foredeck. This balanced her against her lofty mast and gave proportion to her long boom that stuck past the stern. She was Marconi rigged and double-ended for ease in a seaway. Pagan, in her lines and carriage, had the look and air of a sailor that not even a landlubber could fail to interpret. 
Though I knew little of yachts, I had only visited aboard one small sailboat in my life, I liked her. I was willing to risk the voyage to Australia with her. She had been under my hand for two weeks. She was stowed with the necessities for a long sea cruise. Her rigging was in order. There was no reason not to be gone. I, too, after my long month of inaction around Panama, was eager to cast off and give her her head abroad on the sea. The sooner I sailed, I figured, the sooner I would be with Mary. I knew little of the intricacies of manoeuvring a boat under sail, but somewhere was the ultimate of faith that all would come right in its time. The important thing was to be off on the long trip, to be out on the sea with the sails filling, the prow seeking the southwest, and water hurrying under the keel, bubbling in the wake. Such a trip would never have concerned me, but that I longed to see my bride again. However, I must admit, as sailing time neared, I was gripped more and more with a fever for what was ahead. The adventure of it drew me like a magnet. In three years of sailing on heavy freighters and oilers in the merchant marine, I had never been so taken with the romance of a sea voyage. Suddenly, I was wrapped in the prospect, my own boat to command at my own will on the southern seas. I stood gazing out along the main road of the channel to the open, seemingly level water. Unknown to me then were the perils to come out there in the next six months. I couldn't know the ominous twists the cruise would take. I could only be impatient to be on my way to my wife. I was keen to close the widened distance between us, even if I had to do it on the little boat. To do so was to take a course of least resistance and most happiness to myself. That is all. To accept the other alternative and give up the sailboat idea was to continue the forced separation from Mary of the past year. I have always had a quiet yearning for far places. When America entered the war, I had hoped to travel extensively while serving with some branch of the American Armed Forces, preferably the Army Air Corps. But because of a perforated eardrum, I was rejected. I turned seaman and took work as a deckhand in the US Merchant Marine. After two years on the sea and twice around the world on ships of foreign as well as American service, I tired of stuffy, blacked-out quarters and the boundless swagger of maritime gold braid. I deserted a Swedish merchantman in Sydney in January 1944 and joined the Royal Australian Air Force. During my year of service in the RAAF, I trained in Brisbane, Dubbo, in the interior of New South Wales, Sydney and Canberra. It was there I met Mary. At the end of my second month in the Australian Capital Territory, it happened. I somehow committed a minor infraction of Air Force rules and I was placed on CB, confined to barracks for seven days. During this week, I was given a number of humiliating tasks, such as mopping out the front offices and so on. The officer who directed my work was of the Women's Australian Auxiliary Air Force, a waff, blue-eyed, attractive, pleasant to take orders from. We announced our engagement shortly thereafter. In a week, my flight was posted to Sydney, where, in February 1945, I was demobbed in conformity with Air Force demobilization. The American War Shipping Administration contacted me, hoping I would apply as an able seaman to fill shortages on US merchant ships. Actually, I had wanted to enter Sydney University and recommence my education, broken off by the war three years before at Santa Barbara State College in California. I was eligible for Australia's rehabilitation program, but the need for seamen was more pressing. The war 
was still on. Mary encouraged me to join up with the Merchant Marine, and though she had already served three years in the Women's Auxiliary Australian Air Force, she intended to continue serving so long as her country needed her. The day following my discharge, I went aboard an American Liberty ship and signed on as able seaman. The stubby, rusted freighter, shrouded in wartime grey, put into Townsville in the north, then touched at four ports in the Solomons. She hit at the New Hebrides, made the three main calls of the New Guinea north coast, and discharged her final tonnage at Biak and Moratai. She returned to New Guinea for a company of Aussie diggers and transshipped them to Borneo. There we received orders to tramp to Brisbane for another consignment of Aussie troops. When we hailed into Brisbane, I had been gone from Mary nearly four months. It was May. In America, May is the month of spring. In Australia, it is the depth of winter. But love knows no season. We were married in Sydney, then flew to Brisbane to honeymoon for three days before my ship sailed on a Sunday afternoon. The makeshift transport was taking more troops to Borneo and would be back in six weeks. It was to be a steady schedule till the end of the war. Our farewells weren't burdened by the heavy fact of what actually lay ahead of us. We kissed, thinking we would be together every six weeks till the war's end, then forever. The fat Liberty ship wallowed up through the Great Barrier Reef around the tip of eastern Papua and began the long haul for Borneo. Somewhere off Madang, in their black of brewing weather, a sudden cyclone swooped upon the overcrowded vessel and battered her ceaselessly. The whole night she was twisted, lumbering much of the time out of control, being pushed at will by boiling sea mountains and high winds. At a few moments before daylight, less than a week out of Brisbane, she rammed herself full speed and bow on into solid land, just west of the little tropic port of Finshaven. Her bow stood 50 feet into the New Guinea jungle. Trees overhung as far back as the number two hatch. The diggers were lowered over the side to form a cordon around the bow in case we were in Japanese territory. The crew turned to to save the frowsy ship. Her anchors were dumped into the jungle. The cargo from the forward holds was heaved by the board as jetsam. Towing cables were led aft and veered out to waiting tugs. Gear was piled on the fantail and in the gun tubs to press the stern down so the bow could be worked from its coral grip. After five days, with three tugs straining and engines full astern, she shook free and limped into Langimac, sister port to Finshaven, her bows awash. The damage was surveyed and her gaping holes temporarily plugged with cement. We started her thus for Frisco. The third night out, the mate on watch sighted what he thought was a beach over the bows, but it was the wake of a PT boat. He threw all machinery in reverse and the terrific shaking of speedily changed engines shivered her as though she was rammed. The cement in the bilges cracked and re-cracked, dropping through the bottom. Bow awash, she put about for Manus in the Admiralty Islands. For 30 days, the US Navy fetched and carried for the naked grey carcass as she lay shored up in the dry dock. Despite the attention she received, it was almost beyond her to trudge across the Pacific to her internment in an American boneyard. When I tramped down her gangway for the last time, I took a job stevedoring around the San Pedro waterfront. By stevedoring, I kept my finger on the pulse of shipping. In a fortnight, I contacted a tanker bound for Melbourne and signed aboard as able seaman. That night, I was on my way to Mary. Two weeks fell away. It was August. The war had just ended and the crew hummed gaily at its work as it toyed with the prospect of living in a world at peace.
For many of us, this suddenly became our last trip. We were off Samoa, a week out of Port Phillip. Another week and I would be with Mary. It was hard to believe that after three and a half months, we would soon be strolling Melbourne's familiar Flinders Street together. The very night I relished these thoughts, the great wallowing tanker was diverted from her destination by an urgent change of orders to proceed to Manila with our oil. Two weeks in Manila, and we sailed, ostensibly for Texas City via Panama. At Panama, we were directed instead to Aruba in the Dutch West Indies. We berthed at Orangistat like a piglet to a bloated sow, and sucked 125,000 barrels of black oil from the smoking, smelling refineries. As directed, we reported at Honolulu and hence to Yokohama. There, two weeks. A week in Nagoya, eight days in Yokosuka, and we were shoving off for Shanghai. Nine days we swung at the hook on the scurrying Huangpu, watching the tumbled sampans and junks, then steamed downwind to the muddy Yangtze Kiang and thence into the China Seas. 28 days later, we fetched up in Panama, 10,000 miles across the Pacific. A few days in Panama, and the big black hulled tanker was on the track for Curacao, sister island to Aruba. From there, we made across the Atlantic and into Bristol Channel, docking at Avonmouth, England. In two weeks, the 1st of April 1946, I landed in New York City. My first thought after signing off the tanker was to find a ship back to Mary. I started a thorough search of the waterfront immediately. The shipping companies had nothing, passenger or workaway. The Red Cross listened to my predicament and offered all assistance, but they could find no transportation. The United Seamen's Service interceded on my behalf with their every agency, but to no avail. The hands of the maritime unions were tied, only a few ships were plying to Australia, and all of them were out and not expected back for months. Try Frisco, they suggested. I hit the road to the west coast, hitchhiking. I thumbed my way because, first of all, I could beat the bus or train, and secondly, by so doing, I could afford to pay my fare to Australia more readily. I had with me nearly $1,600, roughly half my payoff from the tanker, the remainder of the money I had banked. The story from shipping sources around the Frisco waterfront was much the same series of doubts and speculations as I had found in New York. Four days later, I was shouldering my sea bag down populous Canal Street in New Orleans with the dust of six states in my hair. Once again, I started the search for an Australian-bound ship. For two days, I tramped the rounds of shipping offices and seamen's unions on the riverfront. The best I could do was procure a banana boat for Panama as passenger in two months, provided I could get a visa. Finally, I caught a pierhead jump as scullion on a troop ship bound for Panama via Puerto Rico. In the canal zone, I packed my gear and in the wee hours of the morning, sneaked in through the tight customs guard thrown around the wharves. My purpose in coming to Panama was to catch a British steamer in transit for Australia, or in fact anywhere in Australasia from whence I could make for Sydney. The scheme fell through miserably. Shipping was dead. I asked along the wharves from Cristobal to Balboa, but found no flicker of encouragement. In the end, I was caught stowing away on a Dutchman bound for Indonesia. It was pure bad luck I was caught. The ship was steaming out the main channel and the whistle suddenly clogged. When the engineer came up to the funnel to repair it, he ran unexpectedly into me, crouched as I was just inside the tall, dark shell. He flashed his light on the loaf of bread and bottle of water under my arm, an uncommon sight on a passengerless ship. I was put over the side with the pilot and hauled before the stony immigration authorities. 
There was no interest in my plight. Nobody cared about my problems. I was hustled into the compound to await exportation as a crewman on the next undermanned vessel to pass through the canal. It was in the clink that I met George. George was an Aussie and, like many men one runs across in out-of-the-way places, he was desperate. He burned with a desire to get home. He had missed an Australian ship in Scotland and, unable to pass the physical requirements for the British Merchant Navy, he had no means of working his way back home. He was broke, so he had stowed away on a British tramp. He also was caught and when the freighter arrived in Panama, he was turned over to the canal authorities and stowed away in the compound. When I met him, he was soon to be returned to England to stand trial as a stowaway. George and I were desperate men. We racked our brains that first day to unearth some means of escaping our predicament. I was to be placed aboard the first ship to loom up short of crew. The chance of that ship's going to Australia or remotely near was flimsy. It was much more than flimsy, it was non-existent. I could picture myself pushed aboard some rusty scow outbound from Panama to any odd corner of the world. When George suggested we get a small boat and sail the bloody thing across, I fell in with the idea and in no time we were making wild plans. I knew of a small boat for sale at Balboa, having heard of it on the wind's will, Kim Powell's yacht, which I had come upon while stalking the waterfront. Kim, a veteran of Caribbean and Isthmian waters and a sailor of judgment, said he liked the boat and that was good enough for me. I told George about it and we decided to buy it. That night we scaled the back fence of the compound and found the owner of the craft. The boat was on the block for a thousand dollars. The owner was keen on a sale but had compunctions about passing it off for such a harebrained escapade. I elbowed George and explained that I had sailed out to Honolulu on racing boats and all up and down the Californian coast. I explained that George had battled across the Tasman Sea to New Zealand as a navigator and mate on a catch. After higgling all two in the morning, we came away glowing inwardly and outwardly, the owners of a boat. The next morning, I announced to the authorities that I was a yachtsman, that my craft was anchored at the Balboa Yacht Club and that I must get back aboard. In due time, I told them I could produce papers and show reasons and funds sufficient to warrant sailing out on my own to my wife. They dissented at first, and then when they saw I was determined, agreed to free me, if and when they could verify the facts. In the meantime, I was to languish in the compound. George and I planned that I would go out and ready the boat, which he hadn't yet seen, for sea, and then at the last minute he would come aboard and off we would go. That night we went over the fence to have the first look at our craft. At the yacht club, a small shadow in the dark near the pier was pointed out as the Pagan. We rowed to her and flashed our lights over her decks and into her rigging and down below. Twenty-nine feet never looked so short before, and it seemed to strike George the same way. In fact, when he had been aboard a while and had become more acquainted with her limitations, he talked less about the boat and more about his coming trial in England. He hoped the sentence for stowaways wasn't too severe. I didn't embarrass George by asking him when we got back that night if he intended to go with me. The next day the immigration authorities rather hesitantly gave me the nod. By then I was in the newspapers. People came and stood on the pier watching me at work and they always shook their head when they discussed Pagan. But I was oblivious of their comments. I owned a boat. It was mine. I was too busy working on her, getting her ready to sail. I noised it about the waterfront that I wanted someone to go with me, particularly someone who could navigate because I knew little of navigation. But toward the last, I didn't care who came along. Anyone would do. There were three bidders. The first was Jim, a discharged Marine. 
He too had married overseas. His bride was in Melbourne and he hadn't seen her in 17 months. There was no transport for her to come across. His search for a ship like mine had broken down. He was seriously planning to fit out a lifeboat and set out on his own. Then he heard of me. I met him as arranged by phone in a bar in Balboa. He, like me, hadn't sailed before, but as he put it, ah, there's nothing two Americans can't do. What one won't think of, the other one will. Jim couldn't wait to see Pagan, so I suggested we go out. I should have kept my big mouth shut and taken him aboard just before sailing time. He thought I was kidding when I pointed out Pagan. He was looking at the 50-footer anchored nearby. Finding no kitchen and no bathroom, he chewed his lip and looked blank. When Jim left that night, I didn't expect him back, and he didn't come. I didn't learn the name of the second applicant. He didn't stay long enough. He said he was looking for adventure, but it was the kind he was used to enjoying as an officer in the Merchant Marine. I haven't seen a junior third mate yet with less gold braid than the captain of the Queen Mary, and this one was no exception. He was lavish in praise of the 50-footer and wondered when we would be getting underway. I told him my boat was the 29-footer on the other side and we would sail as soon as he got his gear aboard. What he couldn't understand is that a 29-footer is roughly only twice as wide at a beamiest point as an ordinary bed and just a little more than four times as long. Not much room for adventure. The third bidder was twins and they wanted to sign on to do no work at all, just loaf and enjoy the South Seas. I signed them on site and I couldn't have made a better choice short of around the horn windjammer captain. The twins were kittens, castaways from a nearby machine shop. They had a way about them that took all the burden out of setbacks and disappointments when they came. They were better than a crew. I was hoping the write-up in the Panamanian paper would attract a sailor of experience or even one without. All I wanted was a companion, whether it was black, white, red or green didn't matter. However, regarding the latter, I didn't want him so green he would want to turn back the first day out. When, by May 24th, two weeks after I'd bought Pagan, no callers came, I loaded the last stores, cleared away the decks and watched for a seemly change in the weather. Time was skidding on. Out on the Pacific, skies were smiling on the sea and would do so till October when the hurricanes prowled. I had four months to outrace the hurricane season to the Tasman Sea in Australia, sufficient time for an easy passage, if I could just get underway quickly. I shook hands around the waterfront. Last-minute comforts of books, magazines, food, cooking utensils and crockery were piled on the wharf for me by well-wishing Ismasons. When I stepped down the companionway for an early night, the air was clear, the night was clean, and a fresh wind was in the south. Chapter 2. Departure my destination, as the hour of departure drew close, was to be one of the outer islands of the Galapagos group about a thousand miles southwest from Panama. And, if I missed the Galapagos, and since I hadn't yet had time to learn navigation, I expected I might possibly pass them before I learned, I was going to make the Marchese 3,000 miles further westward my destination. The manoeuvre of getting under sail and pushing off safely into the steamer channel had been in my mind a score of times. Over the last week, as departure time for my trip approached, I grew fluttery in the chest whenever I thought of the first encounter I was to have with the sails. What does a boat do when you heave the sails aloft? I had a book on how to sail. Every day I went through it and memorised names and mentally practised the ritual of getting under sail. The whole thing made me shrink a little and feel very small. So I planned the set-off in minute detail, casting away from the buoy, the set of the sails, everything. 
I would be on deck at daylight to cast off. Once adrift, I would hoist the jib, then staysail, then mainsail, as the book directed. With the wind from the north quadrant, I would run down mid-channel before it, and if it was southerly, I would cast off on the port tack, run to the bar on the right of the channel, then come about to the opposite bar. Thus, no matter what the wind or what my nautical shortcomings, I felt prepared. The time to go had come. It was Saturday, May 25th. A light breeze slid in from the south. My boat and I were as ready as we would ever be. I was on deck at six. I wanted to be underway before the yachtsmen were out for their day's sail. I didn't want them seeing me making my first tries at the sails and tiller. It was for exactly this reason I didn't take a trial run around the harbour to acquaint myself with my boat. The armchair sailors in the yacht club lounge, with their yachting caps on, were ready to guffaw sultily at every move that didn't conform to their dainty code. I pulled my little seven-foot dinghy aboard, lashed it in its place on the starboard rail against the deck house. I unfurled the sails, let the halyards free, and ran the sheets out. I coaxed the engine into motion, and the propeller turned over slow ahead. I danced to the bow and fidgeted with the shackle which joined the anchor chain and buoy. In a moment, Pagan was free and moving slowly ahead. I jumped back to the tiller and pointed her up to the channel. I decided on the spur of the moment not to use the sails since the engine performed so agreeably. I lashed the tiller and sprang to the bow to ready the anchor in case I needed it. It was tangled with its chain and which was strewn across the forescuttle. I took up the anchor, heaved back on the folds of chain to clear them and made to lay the anchor beside its hose hole. The deck tilted ever so slightly. I stubbed against the traveller. My foot slipped. I went over, back first, clawing upward. I was under in a second, dragged by the anchor. I dropped it and groped to the surface. When I could see again, Pagan was a length away, sliding eagerly on toward the moored yachts. The anchor chain was rattling through the hawse. The chain drew taut as the anchor bit in and Pagan's bow fell off, sailing in a long circle around the anchor. I struck out toward her. She passed within a span of a buoy, slid very close to a near yacht, then fell away noticeably down tide. The anchor was dragging. Beyond, to where she drifted, were boats moored closely bow and stern. I broke into a hard swim, head down. I didn't look up. I pounded at the water. When I looked, Pagan had fallen further away. Then what she did stopped me short. She struck a buoy, or rather glanced off it, and turned directly toward me. I swung aside. The curl under her forefoot slapped me gently. When the chain plates came up, I took a grip on them and pulled myself over the rail onto the decks. I pushed the tiller down and she swerved cleanly away, making for a clear spot where I wanted to stop her and relax a minute. Then she fetched up with a jolt to the end of her chain and twisted, doubling back toward the cluster of boats. In a panic, I cut the engine and then wished I hadn't. The anchor, I asked, will it hold? Pagan dragged back and back. The boats loomed. I thought of the engine. I was deciding to go below and crank it. We slid past a mooring, then past the first of the boats. Then I remembered the sails. I leaped along the deck to the mast and dragged down on the mainsail halyard. The heavy white canvas whipped and rustled while it climbed. Then it filled, bellied out, and by its force slackened off the sheets. I ran to the tiller. Pagan was moving. In fact, she was scudding before a quartering wind on the starboard side. I jiggled the tiller to clear the boats. Quite suddenly, I forgot everything I'd learned about sails from the book. I froze, as it were, and sat searching in the rigging for the logical thing to do. I was confused, I guess, by the sudden speed and my inability to reason with it. Just then, Pagan came to the chain end. 
She stopped where she was for a moment, strained mightily, then jibed. The heavy boom flew across with a swoosh from the starboard to the port side. I saw it coming and ducked. I would have been knocked sprawling into the harbour. I ran forward, broke the anchor loose and drew it on deck. I heaved on the sheets and Pagan fell off on the port tack, reaching up to the wind and skidded out of the yacht anchorage and into the main steamer channel. By now the pier was peopled with sailor men out early for the day's cruise. These harbour circumnavigators practice a hard scrutiny of all things of the sea. A few had seen my glaring amateurism. I wanted to redeem myself by a seemingly show as I crowded into the wind, making for the open sea. I stepped lightly forward and hoisted the staysail and sheeted it flat. I hurried back to the tiller to tend my course. In a minute, I stepped up and sent the jib fluttering into the rigging. Pagan took on a more balanced feature in her looks, in her pull and in her angle on the wind. She sped along at what I judged to be about five knots. As she approached the sandbar on the rim of the channel, I put the helm well down, as it explained in the book, to bring her about. She turned jerkily up to the wind, luffed her sails for a brief moment, but fell back on the port tack. When she had gained sufficient speed, I thrust the helm again to leeward. She rounded into the wind, faltered, and fell off the same as before. Again, I resumed speed on the tack. Then suddenly, and almost imperceptibly, Pagan eased to a noiseless halt. She swathed smoothly as though balanced on a wire, except that she was heeled at an unseemly angle. My kittens were clawing uphill over the tilted decks. I tossed them below to the safety of my bunk. I doused all sail, started the engine, put her full astern. No response. I stumbled to the bow, plunged from the low deck into the shallow water and fitted my shoulder against the stem. I lunged at it again and again. I rested a few minutes, watching the falling tide as I did, wondering how long before I'd be high and dry and in view of the yacht club. I climbed to the deck, wilting as I climbed, cursing the bar with everything I could lay my tongue to. Then it came. The wake of an outbound steamer passed under her, wafted her high, then dropped her roughly on the sandy bottom. I gave the engine full throttle astern, leaped over the bows, and in a moment of joyous strength, aided by a surge of wake, shoved her free. I dragged myself over the bows and struggled across the sail-strewn decks to the tiller. I moved Pagan into mid-channel, and taking no more chances with the sails, I headed her outbound to the wide gulf, where there was sea room for my experiments. When Panama saw me last, the decks were flowing their overload of sails and sheets into the water. The boom jerked from side to side and halyards flew at loose ends in the rigging. But for all that, Pagan rode happily out to sea. Day was gone. I was alone with the night sounds of the sea. Pagan pushed through the damp blackness slowly as though feeling her way. I was straining eye and ear toward the bows for hints of land. In my lap, my dainty kittens slumbered placidly, unmindful of my deep anxiety. I drooped over the tiller, yearning for a guiding light to wink out of the black. I was lost. Three hours before, I felt certain I knew my position, but now I was steering a jigsaw course and hoping for sight or sound of a haven where I could anchor and rest for the night and think. The day had posed perplexing questions. As near as I could figure, I was some 50 or 60 miles offshore, somewhere near, I hoped, the little island of Pedro Gonzalez in the Perlas Islands. It was 10 o'clock at night. I was limp from hunger and from the work of practicing all day with my sails. 
The full long day I had hoisted and dropped sail, had manoeuvred my boat at every angle to the wind, had even reefed and double reefed the sails and had drifted and butted aimlessly over a large circle of the sea. In the end I knew my boat better, but I was left in confusion. I didn't know it well enough. Then, unexpectedly, dust had swooped in. I found myself in the busy steamer channel and grimly in need of a night of deep rest. At dusk, Pedro Gonzalez had been a blue smudge on the horizon, which night quickly enfolded. Had I then used full engine with the sails, I could have soon closed in enough to make a night landfall with ease. But I held off. I had expected the breeze to build up soon after dusk and push me in just as quickly. Instead, I was becalmed on a glassy sea with sails slatting, blocks creaking and Pagan rolling listlessly. I left the sails up, but put her under power and groped uncertainly forward. Suddenly, the quick rush of seas came to my ear, followed by irregular intervals of near quiet. I leaned closer to the night. A blackness blacker than the night reared up ahead, and soon the surf was louder. I could see only the towering edge of the jagged isle where it blotted out the stars. Sometimes the seas pounding against the blunt shore sounded closer than at other times. An out-jutting of the shore loomed up ahead. I turned off, rounded it to starboard, and sighted another shaggy shadow on the port beam. I swung around and bore down between the two, hoping to stand in close where I could cast the lead in search of anchorable water. As I crept along, the seas grew louder. Close by to port was a curling line of grey surf. Somehow it seemed it should be farther away. Ahead I could see dollops of water splashing over the rocky shallows. The air was damp as though there was spray in it. You don't acquire the mariner's instinct for imminent danger in a day of sailing. I flashed my light across the water and blinked it. Suddenly, voices boomed out of the black. No passe pa qui, pedras peligroso. Rocks. In a hair-raised moment I flung the tiller to port. Pagan jibed. Gleaming grey water flashed from all sides. I cut the engine. I raced to the mast and cast loose all halyards, clawing down the mainsail. In a trice, I had, almost unknowingly, thrown the anchor out and made it fast at ten fathoms. Rocks were awash practically at the forefoot. On either beam, the slush of water over shoal heads kept me on deck, heart a beat for over an hour as Pagan settled peacefully to anchor. Mestizo fishermen rode out in their frail caiocos. They swung aboard in the beam of my flashlight, grinning from stubbled faces, assuring me that my position, though precarious, was safe enough and went away. I sat on deck, eyeing the rushing water, hearing its ominous sounds in a confused reverie. I thought back on the day, filled with lessons, and I tried to look ahead to what was in store when I should be alone out on the ocean. The longer I pondered, the more I was convinced of my total inexperience for the trip I was undertaking. I didn't know my boat. I couldn't handle her. The day had shown it. It was practice I needed, at least a week of it, if not two. I needed to work and live with my boat as I had done that day. Then I would know her, would be able to predict her behaviour, could control her. I thought of practising in the waters off Pedro Gonzalez, using the isle as a base, and I thought of using the whole Perlas chain as a practice ground. I flashed my light over the Perlas chart and saw, in the tight clustered arrangement of the isles, ideal grounds for my purpose. There were suitable bays to practice anchoring in, and there were close channels to beat through, and there were shoals and reefs and small islets to practice avoiding. In a revealing moment, I decided my liking for them, and figured on getting to work when daylight came. 
When I went below, I was relieved of my unsuredness that had been a part of me for days. Now I could practice in a proper way. I could learn what I needed to know and then sail out on the blue, easy of mind. Throughout the day of working the sails and manoeuvring my boat, I had eaten little and suddenly my stomach was squeezing and unsqueezing itself. For preparation of meals on Pagan, I followed no organised menu. When it came time to eat, I always glanced through the stores list and struck off whatever suited my mood and fancy. Then I rifled through the food lockers until I found it. I made it a point to keep a close tally on my stores so I could readily know the exact state of my supplies. When I outfitted Pagan in supplies, I had the same idea you would have if you were going on a hunting trip. Hunting trips, however, are usually short-lived, whereas I had stocked up for well over four months. When I provisioned for the trip, it was a compromise. A compromise with foods I enjoyed eating, foods that were inexpensive, foods easy and quick to prepare, foods that would keep. I took aboard a gallon each of the following, rice, flour, oatmeal, cornmeal, hominy grits, tea, coffee, honey, jam, oleomargarine and sugar. The reason I say a gallon is because the only thing I could find around the yacht club to store my staples in were a dozen one-gallon cider bottles. I couldn't afford to buy sealed containers to store food in, so I filled each of the bottles, screwed the lids on tightly, wrapped them in blankets and stored them under my bunks. Because I had 12 bottles, I filled two with sugar. For bread, I carried a five-gallon tin of hard, heavy sea biscuits. Housewives around the waterfront gave me a number of quart jars, which I filled with dried prunes, dried apples and dried peaches. From the ceiling of the cabin hung a large bacon and a ham. They swayed with the roll of the boat and freshened the cabin with a richly sweet smell. The bulk of my food stores scented in a heavy load of canned goods, 248 tins in all, mostly large-sized cans. I liked the big cans, they were the right size for a meal. A few twists with a can opener and I had the quickest meal possible. There was everything in the selection from canned ketchup to canned fish for the kittens. Of all my provisions, my favourite was pork and beans. Life on a boat whets the appetite and sharpens the appreciation. The simplest foods take on a zesty flavour. I didn't need, nor had I the means and time for preparing rich ornamental foods. My funds wouldn't allow anything more than simple, life-sustaining flair. Moreover, I was in glowing health and had virtually no food dislikes. It was quantity rather than quality with me. A small, low table on the port side in the after part of the cabin served as my galley. On one corner of the table was a little primer stove, an intricate affair which worked by compressed air and kerosene. It gave me a healthy flame in quick time. It made masterful fish stew. Isthmian housewives had given me an array of pots and pans and odd tableware, no two pieces of which were matched. It all amounted to an effective kitchen, and when, on occasion, I wished to dine other than straight out of a cold can, I was able to set up an impressive formal table. Means of storage for water had been a grave concern from the very first. One of the yachtsmen gave me two 10-gallon milk cans, which I filled and lashed to the mast in the cabin. Someone gave me a 10-gallon oaken beaker and someone else a little 4-gallon oaken keg. I found a 15-gallon airplane gas tank in the rocks on the harbour's edge. I bought six 5-gallon jeep cans at 50 cents each. One I used for kerosene and the other five for water. I bought two 10-gallon oaken beakers from the commissary at the heartbreaking cost of $5 apiece. From quart jars housewives gave me, I managed another three gallons which I stored in the forward bunks.
When I sailed, I carried a little over 95 gallons of water. My fuel supply for the little Kermath marine engine consisted of 80 gallons of gasoline. There were 20 gallons in the built-in tank just forward of the lazarette. I had six five-gallon cans in the cockpit, two five-gallon cans were strapped to the mast on the foredeck, two more were secured to the stern post, and one was lashed to a cleat on each cockpit combing. Aside from the supplies of food and fuel, there were other items. There were an army first aid kit purchased from War Surplus, a large cosmetic kit and other gifts such as nylons for Mary, flea powder to delouse the kittens, two brand new suits of clothes, complete with overcoat and hat, in which to meet my wife upon my arrival in Sydney, a pneumatic life raft for emergency use, and two cheap feathers and a shark spoon with which to fish for extra food. I had a small library aboard, about 25 books in number. Almost all of them were given me. Many magazines were brought down to the wharf for me, including comic books. The latter I would have discarded, except that I felt I could pass them off to some appreciative native peoples along the way. In the way of luggage aboard, I had my personal belongings, packed into my sea bag, my carryovers from the merchant marine. I had seven suits of khakis, odd shirts and trousers, shoes and foul weather gear. I had a number of navigation instruments aboard, which as yet I knew very little about. I was waiting to get out to sea where I would have time enough and ideal conditions for learning to navigate. My total stores, according to my rough estimate, upon departure, were sufficient to keep me in good supply for at least four months. If I was lucky at fishing, as I hoped to be, or able to collect island fare along the way, I figured I could sail for five months. This afforded me a wide margin of safety since I expected to be in Sydney in just under four months. Well, that's the end of chapters one and two of Desperate Voyage by John Caldwell, a somewhat lost lost tome from the history of sailing. Um, if you fancy getting out on the water and crossing an ocean, of course you can do it like John, jumping on a 29-foot boat and hoping that you work it out as you go along. Another way to do it is to join us Spartan Ocean Racing. That's www.spartanoceanracing.com where professional crew, professional skippers on commercially coded uh, 60 foot and 80 foot boats can take you out and give you a, a good idea of what it is to professionally cross an ocean uh, whether you're looking to do it for yourself or just learn what it's about it's a great opportunity to get out on one of the last frontiers the open ocean uh, push yourself learn things and uh, get to the bottom of what it takes to, to cross an ocean so if you fancy that www.spartanoceanracing.com and I shall speak to you in the next episode of Rare Nautical Reads. Cheers.